So again, let yourself find a way to sit at ease and listen not so much to uh, believe what you hear, frankly, um, but to let it touch your own wisdom and see and sense and feel what is really true that you know to be true in your own heart. Let it be a reminder to look for your own truth. So this evening and over this, the course of these weeks, um, I'd like to continue talking in the way that I have over many years about various Buddhist teachings and aspects of um, understanding that are timeless and universal, and yet also perhaps somehow uh, find a way to connect them to the current situation both in the world around us and, and for ourselves. And tonight I think about meditation and spiritual life um, as asking us to look as if in a mirror, to see in the moral complexity and the um, anxiety that arises in the global situation and the places that it touches in our own lives, to see how we might be with that as a place of deepening our wisdom and our compassion and our understanding. To find a refuge that is timeless in the midst of all that is changing around us. O nobly born, it says in the Buddhist texts, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are. The invitation of Buddhist practice and really of spiritual practice is to remember, to awaken to that which is timeless, eternal, ever-present, ever-true. Even in the cycles of civilizations of birth and death and war and peace and gain and loss. I remember one Tibetan teacher who had come back from doing uh, a couple of three-year retreats where you go into solitude or in kind of into a very small um, cave or uh, circumstance just on your own or with a few people and speak to no one else for three years or six years. And Kalu Rinpoche, the Lama, who was teaching that retreat, reminded them as they began that many people will be born and many people will die in the course of these years. Much will happen on the earth. And yet your commitment, if you choose to enter this retreat, is to find that which is beyond all the realms of birth and death. When we sit in meditation or come back to listen inside in our own hearts, we follow the Buddha's invitation to this eternal or timeless dharma or truth. My own teacher, Ajahn Chah, 
spoke of this as awakening the one who knows within us, that place of wisdom he called the one who knows. Rumi put it simply, he said, pay regular visits to yourself. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't always do that. We're so busy running around. To rest in the one who knows is to rest in our natural wisdom or our Buddha nature. To sit quietly and let the mind quiet and let the heart open and see with the eyes of wisdom, the eyes of a Buddha. One way to understand the one who knows this place of wisdom in us is to look at the one who forgets. It's fantastic forgetfulness and sleep. It is one of the most mysterious things on earth. First of all, sleep itself is a mystery that we, you and I, and most animals, certainly the, you know, the higher mammals and various other things, they sleep. They have run around or have the, all these experiences that we do in our normal waking consciousness, and then for six or eight or nine or however many hours, we pull the covers up, we close our eyes, and we go into a whole other world, and we leave this one every day. Isn't that weird? I mean, it is. It's very strange. Some creatures do it for long periods of time, hibernate for months at a time, and then they come back and they say, well, here I am again to the world. But we do it all the time. Nobody knows exactly why. I mean, yes, it restores you and there are all the explanations, but why on this planet, in this human incarnation, or this animal body, um, is it that it's designed that we have this other consciousness? And then all those dreams, you know, everybody's busy at night. You're not just sleeping. <laughs> and all these adventures. So that's one of the most amazing things, that sleep is built in like birth and death and pleasure and pain and gain and loss, waking and sleeping. It's phenomenal. But there are two kinds of sleep. Not only that mysterious sleep where we, you know, go off someplace, who knows. There's a second sleep which we could call the waking spell that we are under. The sleep of automatic living when we get in our car and drive somewhere and pull up and put on the parking brake and realize we have no idea where we were the whole ride until we got there. Who was even driving that car is a mystery. And this kind of automatic living happens in little and big ways. Sometimes we'll be parenting a child and all of a sudden, without a moment's kind of consciousness, out of our mouth will come the words of our own mother or father. Like, who said that? You know, it just happened, didn't it? Unconsciously. Um, Or the unconsciousness that happens when someone around us gets sick or dies. And it seems like it's such a shock. Boy, is that's amazing that person died. In Bhagavad Gita, when uh, Arjuna is speaking to Lord Krishna, God, the symbol for the divine, and at some point Krishna, or somewhere in the Mahabharata, says, do you know what the most amazing thing on this amazing earth is? And Arjuna says, no, what is that? Or maybe Arjuna asks him, what's the most amazing thing? And, and Lord Krishna replies that human beings can see people die all around them and still think it won't happen to them. <laughs> That's a kind of amazing mystery. 
Or we have the kind of amazing sleep where in our economic and um, political foreign policy we have become the greatest weapon supplier on the face of the earth over the last 20 years, year in and year out, selling billions of dollars of killing machines to many, many, many nations on earth. And then we wonder why we're not safe. <laughs> I mean, um, there are terrible consequences when we don't pay attention. There's a kind of denial in sleep about what we're actually doing and what its consequences might be. And so things become rote and automatic or even trivialized. As Rita Mae Brown says, in America the word revolution is used to sell pantyhose. A little bit depressing, but there it is. Okay. And we all know the places in our life where we go to sleep in certain relationships or eating certain things or in certain kinds of circumstances or with the world, with the problems of the world the way it is. We get lost in the separate sense of self, the body of fear, and forget who we really are. Now sleep has its benefits, letting go, resting, forgetting, forgiving and forgetting. There's there's something good about sleep as well. I don't mean to put it all down. In one Burmese monastery, um, when you get sleepy in the meditation, it's called the poor man's nirvana, right? It's that quality of, okay, we actually need rest. And especially, we need rest from the trauma or the suffering of our life at times. So that Emily Dickinson wrote, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up then covers the abyss with trance so memory can step across as if within a swoon. There's a pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers the abyss with trance. And so sometimes we do need to sleep or rest or put things aside or not pay attention. It lets us be fresh to forget for a time. So we won't, don't want to judge it. But at the same time, it can easily lead us into a kind of denial. Remember those letters from the insurance company. These are actual letters written to describe accidents that were sent on reporting forms, things that people wrote. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. (laughs) Or I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. The telephone pole was approaching. 
I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front end of my car. We live in a society that actually encourages a kind of denial and addiction, you know. And the way we advertise things, the way we look at things. The lottery, come on. You have as much chance to win the lottery as them sending it to you by accident, right? (laughs) This is from Sigmund Freud. See if I can find the right passage here. Life as we find it is too hard for us. It entails too much pain, too many disappointments, impossible tasks. We cannot do without palliatives, remedies. There are perhaps three of these means, powerful diversions of interest which lead us to care less about our misery, substitute gratifications which lessen it, and intoxicating substances which make us insensitive to it. Something of this kind is indispensable. So that's Sigmund's view of our human existence. Forgetfulness is this astonishing, amazing quality. Our separate universe is constructed of one thing, forgetfulness. Emerson wrote about the birth of a human being trailing clouds of glory, or in the Hindu tradition where the baby, it said, sings in the womb, oh, please let me remember who I am. And then the first song, the cry after the birth is, Oh dear, I am forgetting already. (laughs) Alan Watts spoke about it as the taboo against knowing who we are. And even spiritual practice and religion kind of collaborates in this ruse at times, you know, through various rituals and practices and beliefs as if we could somehow pacify something bigger than ourself and not have to pay attention to the mystery of this life into which we are born. Where do we come from? Who are we? Who took incarnation in this body? (coughs) Don't know, somebody might say. That's a very good start. A man who'd studied much in the schools of wisdom finally died and found himself at the gates of eternity when an angel of light approached him and said, Go no further, O mortal, until you can prove to me your worthiness to enter into paradise. The man answered, Just a second now. First of all, can you prove to me this is a real heaven and you're a real angel and this is not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? And before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gate shouted, let him in, he's one of us. (laughs) So these are the real questions that spiritual life and times of difficulty ask us. What is our ground of understanding? When we forget who we are and get too busy in our lives to awaken, We don't have time. It seems like you think you don't have time until 
some incident of road rage where somebody almost runs you off the road, or until you get that phone call from the doctor about the mammogram or the prostate test or the whatever it is for you or a family member, and all of a sudden, wait a second, this life is really short. Or until we turn on the news and see that what we thought was one way, yes, that's how it sounds sometimes. <laughs> I appreciate your comment. You turn on the news and go, ah. There's a cost to our sleep-waking, living like machines automatically. To our families, you know, people come and say, I had couples come to me in couples therapy and say, well, we're getting divorced, but it'll be all right for the kids. You know, we'll live near one and everything will be fine. I mean, and there is a time when, in certain situations where divorce may be necessary, but it's not okay for the kids. You know, it's not the truth. It's also not the truth that we can imagine that we're safe when there are tens of thousands of nuclear warheads still poised around the earth, um, which can be either activated or stolen. I mean, it's the truth. We've made all these terrible weapons, and they're out there, and nobody talks about them. It's also not the truth that materialism, the consumer society that we have, is going to, in the end, work if that's our fundamental and sole value. As Wendell Berry says, unlimited economic growth can be accomplished within limited space with limited materials and limited intelligence. Those who believe this only show the unlimited courage and self-confidence of their great minds. That unlimited economic growth, however, also implies unlimited consumption, which in turn implies unlimited covetousness, lust, gluttony, envy, anger, greed, pride, and so forth, only makes the prospect even more unlimited. <laughs> we really have to look at it. And it's hard to, because at times we feel like our heart can't bear to see the world honestly. From the small sense of self, we can't do it. It's overwhelming. And yet, when we forget, we think that things are permanent, and they're not. That they won't change. We think that there's going to be pleasure and happiness without pain and loss. And that's not the human realm. It has both. We think we own things and possess them. And they're given to us for a short time, and that is all. When we don't look, and we let the pain that we carry go underground, then it comes out in all kinds of other ways, in disease for ourselves, or in violence toward another. As James Baldwin said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once it's gone, the hate, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. So this is the one who forgets. And in Greek, the word 
for sleep is lethe. Remember the river lethe? And the word, the opposite of the word lethe, alethe, means truth. The word for truth in ancient Greek was alethe, waking up from the sleep, to see the world as it is, with its joys, with its sorrows, to take responsibility for seeing the world as it is, is the only way to live with integrity, to heal this earth. So this is a lot about the one who forgets. I'm sure you meet her or him regularly. I do. And the consequences are painful. The people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they are the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they are the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they are the children of loneliness. And if your fear of the truth owns you, they are the children of the fear of truth. That's the cost. And some of us can feel, without saying there's a one-to-one relationship, that certainly the anger toward America in many parts of the world is in some substantial measure the result of conditions that we ourselves have made. What about the one who knows? When we sit and pay attention in an honest and open way, sense that place of wisdom in us, we discover a deeper truth. The Buddha said, who is your enemy? The mind is your enemy. And who is your friend? The mind is your friend. The mind, which has been the source of destruction, war, racism, and conflict in our world, can equally be the source of great healing, creativity, reconciliation, and truth. People lose their wisdom eye through ignorance, doubt, and false ideas. But when they realize the nature of reality, the wisdom eye shines clearly once again. It is true for all of us. The awakening of the one who knows is really simple. It means to see the way things are. There's a saying in Zen, if you understand Things are just as they are. If you do not understand, things are just as they are. But the one who knows sees the way things are. Oh, nobly born, what do you see from the wisdom of your own heart? Some of the things you might look at and see if they are true. The one who knows sees that life is short, the truth of impermanence. What happened to our childhood? It goes so fast. 
what happened to the way things were. It changes again and again. Don Juan suggests to Carlos Castaneda that he take death as an advisor. If you don't know what to do in a situation, look over your shoulder and get a sense of death over your left shoulder. They're waiting to tap you someday. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes even a small gesture to you. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to talk about it as my na, which means it's uncertain, isn't it? People would ask him all kinds of questions and he'd look back, he'd smile and he'd say, it's uncertain, isn't it? You think it's one way and it can change. You never know for sure. I heard this past week about a wonderful work of art in Colorado made by a woman, I don't know her name, called the Salt Monument. Does anybody know about it? What she has done in this beautiful room that was constructed is to create an enormous crystal, uh, a transparent crystal that's probably um, eight or ten feet high that spins on an axis, kind of from its corners. And it's filled two-thirds of the way through with six billion crystals of salt, one for each person on Earth. So you go in first and you see, and it spins slowly. There's a globe there that spins once a day, and this spins as well, like the globe. And you go in and you see how many people six billion is by this huge thing, these tiny little crystals. And every morning, in a ritual way, she takes out 200,000 grains of salt for those who've died the day before. And she adds 250,000 grains of salt for those who are born this day. She also has, for those who would like, little vials of salt. This is the people in the state of Colorado. Right? This little vial. This one is all the people you are likely to meet in your whole life. You can hold that up next to the great salt monument. So it shows, as an artist, in a way that touches our soul, this truth. Every day, 250,000 grains of salt, and then every day, uh, 250,000 grains added, and 200,000 taken out. One day, an old Sufi came across the desert from Afghanistan into Iraq, it's told. You know, there are a lot of wise people from that part of the world. And he went into the palace of the sultan, knocked at the gate where the guard was, and said, may I stay a night in your motel? This was transmitted into the sultan, who said, send this scoundrel in, you know, to speak. I heard you ask, may I spend the night in your cheap motel, basically, was the phrase in Persian or whatever it was, Farsi. And uh, the sultan said, what a great insult. Unless you can explain yourself, you know what will happen. And the Sufi looked at him, greatly insulted, you know. And he said, this that you call your palace, who owned it before you? He said, why, my father was the sultan. And what happened to him? Why, he died. And who owned it before him? 
why my grandfather and before him my great-grandfather was the sultan. And what happened to him? Oh, he died and he died. And this place where people lodge for a brief while and move on, did you say it was not a motel? Said the Sufi sage. And the sultan bowed. Instead of grasping, when we know that life is short, we can live from what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. We can live now in the reality of the present. My wife really takes this to heart in the way that whenever I leave or my daughter leaves, she makes sure to say goodbye because she says she just has this feeling that you never know if you'll see that person again. In the tragedy in New York, amazing stories of goodness came out in the last moments of people's lives sometimes. If you had only a few days, who would you call or talk to? What would you say? And as Stephen Levine used to ask, why are you waiting? Mm -hmm. The one who knows sees that life is so precious and short that we only have this day for sure. The one who knows also sees the truth of the limits of pleasure. Pleasure is fine, but it is what it is. If it were not for pleasure, said the Buddha, then beings would not get entangled in this world. The thing about pleasure is it doesn't last and it really doesn't bring lasting happiness. Remember the story of Socrates who lived such a frugal life? One disciple or student came to Socrates and said, if you live such a frugal life yet you love to go to the marketplace, why is that? And he said, so I can see how many things I'm happy without. (laughs) Yes, there is pleasure, but even in the midst of the pleasure that we have from food and good company and things, which is lovely, we also know that we can be frightened to lose it, be hanging on by our nails in some situations, that pleasure just doesn't do it. It doesn't really fulfill the heart. Why? Because it changes. And then you try and get more and more and more, and that doesn't do it either. You just get tired after a while. What really makes the heart happy is not how much we get or how much we hold on to, which is unsuccessful, but how much we can give. It's the love of the heart, the generosity of the heart, that makes us happy. The one who knows sees this truth. That's the deeper joy of life. The one who knows also sees that in this human realm we cannot escape loss, sorrow, death, or change. We live in the realm of what the Tao calls the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of unspeakable beauty and the ocean of tears. This is the human realm we took birth in. 
And we are a river constantly changing our own lives, light and dark, praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow. And when the sorrows are great, which they will be sometimes, what can we do? Once in New York, there was a Jungian conference based on this wonderful film by Marie-Louise von Franz, the great disciple of Carl Jung, about the nature of dreams. After she showed the film, there was a panel of senior analysts who were on stage answering questions about dreams, including Carl Jung's grandson as an analyst. And someone sent up a card. The questions came in cards describing a recurring dream in which the dreamer was stripped of all human dignity and worth through Nazi torture. The whole dream was read out, and one of the panel read it. And uh, the person writing the story, who was a psychologist, said, I was sitting there thinking of all the ways I would help the person interpret the dream. It was so obvious what she had to deal with and how she had to open and what the dream was inviting. But this wasn't how the panel responded at all. Instead, Carl Jung's grandson stood up and looked out over the audience and said, Would you all please rise? We will stand together for a minute of silence in response to this dream. And everyone stood for a minute and then sat down. And the psychologist was now waiting for the great interpretation. And he simply went on to the next dream. And finally, someone frantically waved their hand and said, but Dr. Jung, the younger Dr. Jung, you know, what, what, what did you do? How did you understand that dream? And he said, oh, my dear, there is in life a vulnerability so extreme, a suffering so unspeakable that it goes beyond all interpretation and words. In the face of such suffering, all we can do is stand together in witness so no one need bear it alone. The truth that this is part of life. And no matter who you are, even a great Tibetan Lama like Lama Yeshe, his great enlightened teacher, there he was in the hospital. And he said, after 41 days in intensive care, my body was like that of a, uh, what did he, a the lord of a cemetery, my speech like the barking of an old mad dog, and my mind like that of an anti-god. I tried so hard to practice, and it was so difficult this from this great Lama. Don't forget the truth of the world, he said. This is the holy truth that will awaken you if you see the world the way that it is. There's this whole scare about anthrax, which is certainly frightening. We don't feel safe when we read about it. Were you ever safe? This week, maybe one person died from anthrax in America, and a thousand died in auto accidents, and 30,000 died in other ways this week. Are we safe? The one who knows sees that birth and death and joy and sorrow are woven into this life 
and bows to it, the wisdom of insecurity. This is the way things are. Let me live wisely each day that I am given. The one who knows is awake, rests in this awareness, this knowing heart, to be present for what is without grasping, knows how to let go. There is a shift of identity when we move from the small sense of self to the one who knows. <laughs> Remember this poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez, Yo no soy yo, it goes in Spanish. I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget, the one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. Who am I really? In the waking sleep, day to day, this business of survival, it's easy to lose our goodwill, our joy, our spirit, and contract in the small self, the body of fear. And then we struggle because we have forgotten that which is timeless, eternal, the dance of life that is always happening now. We struggle and blame somebody else, them, it, the government, our spouse or lover, the enemy, the liberals or the conservatives or the neo-Nazis or the Muslims or the Republicans or the Democrats, somebody else, the Russians, or we blame ourselves. Guilt, shame, it's our fault. I'll always be that way. The one who knows sees this world from the perspective of the timeless open heart holds it all with compassion, every single form that is so tentative, rests in this vast space of knowing, the freedom of the heart. Who are you? Look to see, well, who am I? Am I this body, these thoughts and feelings? Perhaps I am this great knowing within which it arises. The one who knows rests in the timeless and can meet the world with forgiveness. One Native American elder recently was asked about all of the conflict and anger in the world at this point, this grandfather. And he was asked, how do you feel about the war and all the, the, you know, the attack in New York? And he said, I feel as if I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is the vengeful, angry, violent one. The other wolf is the loving, compassionate one. And then his grandson who was sitting there said, Grandfather, which wolf will win the fight in your heart? And the grandfather answered, Whichever one I feed. Look to see who we feed. Because the one who knows realizes even in the face of tragedy, terrible tragedy, there comes a time 
to pray not just for ourselves, but as the Tibetan nuns in prison do, to pray even for the enemy, for the suffering that they make for themselves and others. And don't think it's not possible for you. The one who knows in us remembers that even we can live with this great heart of a Buddha. There was a remarkable story in this last week's New Yorker out of Afghanistan by John Lee Anderson. It was an interview with one of the Afghani northern commanders of the Northern Alliance, Mamur Hassan. And it talked about him and his thousand troops and the kind of city, small town in northern Afghanistan that he was the head of and so forth and how it had happened and his family as, as soldiers he'd been fighting for two decades. But woven in with the story of how he was leading was the story that when the Russians came in to Afghanistan and he and his family was mobilized to fight against them, that he got himself under a commander who was somewhat cruel. And when they swept back into his part of Afghanistan, they took the father of a man, an acquaintance that he knew, who was a gentleman, father of a man named Sanrudin, a gentleman, um, uh, a, a sort of Afghan nobleman who uh, ha- was um, well-educated and very well-off, rich, and, and really served the community, but who held a lot of power. And they brought him into a cave and assassinated him. And this man was a part of that happening. So the children of the man who was unjustly killed, especially his son, Sanrudin, went and joined the Russian forces, even though that was not his predilection, in order to avenge his father. And at some point, they were able to sweep back into this part of Afghanistan. And his forces came into the village and the home of um, Mamur Hassan and pulled out his family, including his mother, and ordered that they be shot. Terrible, terrible story. And then a remarkable thing happened. Some months after that, this was probably 15 years ago, Mamur Hassan, who was thinking of then returning the vengeance, spoke with one of the local mullahs or wise men, and afterward asked for a meeting for Sanrudin. And they met in a neutral ground with the wise men of the community, And Mamur Hassan looked at him and said, My people unjustly killed your father. Your people now unjustly killed my mother. Let us stop at that and make a pact of friendship. And they did. And for 15 years he has ruled in this area and there has been peace in this part of Afghanistan because he was willing to stop. The one who knows in us sees that the heart is great and that the troubles of the world, vast though they are, can be held in the heart of compassion. It is never too late to love, no matter what is happening. It is never too late to forgive and let go. The one who knows sees how much we need each other. 
that we can't do it alone. No one exists alone. That we need the support of one another and praise for the children and the mothers of Afghanistan, for the soldiers who were there on both sides. For as it was written, we will truly know the end of civilization when half of the world starves and the other half watches it on TV. The one who knows sees that we cannot possess ourself, our children, others. We can only love them. And in that there is a spirit of innocence and innocence even in the face of the grave disasters of our time. As the Dalai Lama says, if we can't be happy on this earth, what good has our spiritual practice done us? There's an interview that was conducted recently with the Dalai Lama by Pico Iyer, the writer, very wonderful writer. And after the interview, he did a little essay reflecting on why the Dalai Lama has become such a remarkable figure for the spirit of the world, what the nature of his charisma and his appeal is. And on the day that Pico Iyer had his interview, he said, on that particular day, the answer that came to me was this, that he has suffered to an almost incomprehensible degree. At the age of two, he was wrenched from his quiet life by a group of traveling monks and taken from his family and put through a ferociously rigorous monastic training. By the time he was 15, he was made head of state up against Mao Zedong and the largest nation and one of the largest armies in the world. He was forced to leave his country that he loves and serves. He's seen hundreds of thousands of his people die often in his service. He's seen almost every diplomatic advance of 40 years rejected. And as Dalai Lama, he accepts all this as his responsibility. His mother dies, his closest brother dies. He's always trying to rescue Tibet. His teachers die. Refugees come to his room daily weeping with their stories of trauma. And in the middle of this, what is the man famous for? Pure optimism, happiness, calm, and an invincible sense of peace. His smile, his warmth, everything that makes him what one friend of mine calls the happiest human being alive. It makes you humble in a way. It causes you to think if someone who has seen and lost all that he has seen and lost, 40 years waiting to go back to a home that is slowly and systematically being destroyed. If someone can look at the light in things, what right does any of us have to feel sorry for ourselves? Some people would say, and I think with justice, that the Dalai Lama's message on one level is a rigorous optimism. Others would point simply to his kindness, the equivalent of the Buddha holding up a flower and saying nothing, just the look in his eyes. 
But on this particular summer morning, seeing him, I thought that his lesson, one of them at least, might just be his life. One long, unbroken trail of separation and tragedy. And yet to look at him, to listen to him, you would think that every moment was lit up with pure gold. To look at him and listen to him, you would think that every moment was lit up with pure gold. The abode of the wisdom heart in us is that of compassion. To look with the eyes of wonder, to see the beloved around us, to rest with the mother of the Buddhas, to remember that there is only now. We spend so much time looking for happiness and security and love. It's here. It's nowhere else. Not by grasping, but by letting go and opening. Where we are is the only place to love. We are here for only a short while. O nobly born, remember your part in the changing seasons. And in this comes a great trust. You can care for your children or your work, the community around you and the whole of the earth. But from the heart's true nature, to honor all of life, to rest and see with the eyes of a Buddha that are timeless and forgiving and awake. As Rumi says, do you know if this is true? Say yes quickly if you've known this from before you were born. Is this true? Say yes quickly if you've known this from before you were born. Let's sit for a moment. To see the world honestly cannot be done without deep compassion. Truth and compassion are wedded together in the heart, for it is only that compassion 
within you that will give you the courage to see things as they are and respond to them with love and not fear. So I see our meditation or spiritual practices, whatever you do during the week, take time to walk in the hills or walk by the ocean or sit quietly, as just making the space to touch into this one who knows. Let us do a very simple chant in a moment and then we'll go out into the autumn evening. I thank you for coming Thank you for your support to Spirit Rock um, and for your goodness. The chant we'll do is this simple chant of Namo, which means to pay respects or bow to. In India, you meet someone, put your hands together and say Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. So let us chant Namo, which is the Sanskrit root of that word. And as you do, you can bow to whatever in your heart and in the world asks for a bow. Chant nine times and then go out into the evening. silence after the chant and the bows. Make sure to take time to rest in that silence this week. Thank you very much. Good night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.